So as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 through 17, why don't you take your Bibles out, flip there. And uh, wouldn't you know, this is the day that I can't find my Bible on my way to church. And I've got a few of them. I mean, I could have brought like the big one, you know, but I'm not strong enough for that one anymore. My wife's like, we need to have a spot for our Bibles around the house. I'm like, you know what? I just read them everywhere. I'm always reading it. So it's good that it's not in one place, right? But I do have it on my, my, my uh, phone, so got that going for me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament Uh, verse 14 hop back a verse but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in christ jesus and uh All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why don't we pray together as we come to the word. Lord, uh, thankful for today, for the people you've drawn here, for this passage that we're in the New Testament. It is a special passage. It's an important passage in the Christian faith. It gives us our great understanding of the foundation that we can stand on the word of God. We can stand on the Bible. We can stand on the scriptures. And, uh, and we can understand where they came from and why they are such a big deal, so important to us. Uh, and so, God, as today is a bit more of a Bible college, as today is a bit more of a school, as today is a bit more instruction, uh, Lord, let it be inspiration as well, Lord. Let it be uh, just a move on our heart by your Spirit that we could uh, know the ways of salvation, that we could be saved from our sin, and we could know our Creator, and we could be brought back into right relationship with you, God. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I think I forgot to click the uh, presentation on air there, Jordan. Leave it to me to get you all set up and then forget to do that. But uh, this morning, first we're going to deal with Scripture's origin, okay? Where did the Bible come from? And we are probably going to take a couple of weeks of that. We're going to be looking at inspiration, okay? Uh, We're going to be looking at inerrancy, uh, that the Bible is without error. This is exciting stuff. It's great to look at in our day and age of criticism, which has really been every day and age. Uh, And then eventually we'll look at verse 17 at the purpose of scripture, what it's intended for, if it has a source from God, if it is indeed without error. So in a sense, we're going to go from creed in verse 15 to conduct in verse 17. I'm going to tell you in a couple uh, minutes here when we're going to hit start on your note page, okay? Got about three pages to go. But first, I wonder if you can guess the context of this statement. Listen up. We present you with this book 
the most valuable thing this world offers. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Where did that come from? It actually came from the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. After she had taken the oath, with one hand upon the Bible, she then was presented another Bible. The most valuable thing this world has to offer, the Britons believe. I wonder if the Britons still believe that. I wonder if we believe that. Paul gives Timothy, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, a lot of instruction in a day where paganism had been attacking the church from outside and confusion had been attacking the church from within. If you come to Calvary Chapel for very long, you know that there's just this steady, steady drumbeat of exposition from the Bible. We just are teaching through the Bible. We're preaching through the Bible. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. We get to tough passages. We get to hard stuff. We get to controversial stuff. And we dive right into it. We're confident that the Bible can back itself up and then it can be our solid rock. It's a great foundation. You'll notice here at Calvary that the Bible is afforded the central place in all that we do. Everything that we do, we look to the scripture to back up our faith and our practice. Why is that? It's because it's important. And you might ask, is it really as important as you suggest? Well, uh, yesterday uh, we had a wonderful thing happen in Prineville. It was the AYSO... Uh, soccer tournaments. We got Brett here from the board, I noticed. Welcome, Brett. Good to see you. Johnny from the board sitting next to Brett, right? A lot of us in this room had kids at the tournament. A lot of us were there. Lots of fun. Now, imagine if we'd showed up to this AYSO game yesterday and there was no ball. There was no ball. And someone said, forget the ball. Let's get on with the game, right? I mean, it would just be a whole lot of like, You know, obviously a lot of confusion and disorder. Sadly, though, many people come to church and they say, forget the Bible. Let's just get on with the ceremony. Let's get on with the pomp. Let's get on with the circumstance. And I'm telling you right now, it'll lead to the exact same thing. Preachers, are, you know, the next, the next controversial thing comes into culture. You know, and we don't know what to do. All right? It's ridiculous. It's important that we have the central part of, of our faith and our practice, the, the revelation of God, where he shows us who he is, what his character is, what his nature is, what his attributes are, and what he requires of us or doesn't require of us. Many places would say that we don't need the Bible. And so the question is asked, why bother with the Bible? so outdated so many just random guys smoking opiates you know taking pills writing random stuff down on the same level of so many other books rogers why do you spend so much time in the bible why not more time just in worship and song more time in prayer more time with testimonies well in psalm 138 verse 2 at the end of the verse it says that god has magnified his word above his very name that's how much he regards 
the scriptures, the word of God. As Timothy was told in verse 15, the holy scriptures are able to make him wise for salvation, can give you wisdom for being saved. It instructs us for salvation. We'll see during this small series that an encounter with the Bible is an encounter with the one who authored the scriptures to save us. The Bible is essentially a handbook of salvation. Its overarching purpose is to teach not merely facts of science like the nature of the moon rock or whether the earth is really round or where behemoth came from, if it really was a dinosaur or not, as Russell and I were talking about as we were hunting this week. The whole Bible gives us something so much deep and of more, much more depth, but facts of salvation that no space exploration can discover. Only God can reveal the facts of salvation. And the whole Bible unfolds the divine scheme of salvation. First of all, that man was created in God's image. Man, that gives you so much value as a human being. You're not a giraffe. You're not a donkey. You know, you're not a sheep. But you were created in the image of God. You were given the last, most best place of creation. You are the capstone of creation, man. It was on you that God was willing to jeopardize his own glory by saying, let's make this one like us. As he talks trinitarily, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let's make man like us. Well, what if he, yeah, because he's gonna. What if he just messes it all up and just totally blows the whole shebang? And yeah, we got a plan for that if and when he does that. And then we see man's fall through his disobedience into sin and then under the judgment of God. And then we see through the scriptures God's continuing love for him in spite of his rebellion. And we see God's eternal plan since the foundation of the world to save him through a covenant through an agreement that's based upon grace, not our own works. Grace for his chosen people. And this covenant culminates in Christ Jesus, who came to the earth as a savior, and he would die to bear my sins and yours upon the cross. Then he didn't stay dead. Miracle of miracles, he rose from the dead. Nobody does that, just in case you're wondering. He did. And then he was exalted into heaven. Then he sent the Holy Spirit to us that we wouldn't be like orphan children without their dad. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and with us and upon us, gives us a mission and a purpose in this world. He speaks towards man's rescue from guilt and alienation, freedom from bondage, freedom from death. And then this experience that we have of life of being free day by day, more and more. And none of this would be known apart from the biblical revelation in that leather back book that's in your hand. Or if you're like me today, the iPhone 8, right? Thank you, 8. Okay. The Bible is the priority and it's the authority and it's the sufficiency of all gospel ministry. Just so you know. When a pastor loses the power and the sufficiency of the scriptures in his convictions, 
he's lost the position to be used by God to see men and women get saved and then also to be used by God to accomplish his will. The man who was once convinced of the authority of the scripture, convicted of the authority of the scripture, the power and the relevance of the scripture, and then loses that conviction, no longer affirms the divine authority of the Bible. And so as verse 15, or actually 14 tells us, 14 and 15, that the scripture is able to make you wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. It's important that you know that in your own Christianity, it wasn't some spectacular rationale or argument that that one guy had with you that day at the coffee shop or ever. Man, he just said this and boom, man, the way he put it. No, it was the Lord using the word of God and bringing it to bear on your heart. The breathed out Bible. And we're going to see what that means in a second. And so come to your notes because we're going to take some. Because so many things today are a bit informational and they might seem a little less inspirational. But that doesn't have to be the case. Verse 16 says, That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in all righteousness. And and in just a minute, we'll get down to your first blank, so don't panic yet. But we start out with this all scripture in verse 16. All scripture. That means the New Testament, the Old Testament, the genres of the scripture where you've got law and prophet and history and poetry we're talking about jesus's words and paul's words and peter's words all scripture okay is given by inspiration and and as we speak of the inspiration of scriptures we're talking about christian doctrine all right that's a word that uh kind of blows our mind a little bit sometimes doctrine when we speak of doctrine we speak of what is a belief or a system of beliefs that are and have been accepted as authoritative by the Christian church, okay? And so this doctrine is called the inspiration of the scriptures, okay? Now your first uh, blank should be that inspiration is the uh, pillar to bibliology, Okay, or the bibliology to Billera. Okay, no, don't do that to me. It's inspiration is the pillar to bibliology. What's bibliology? Well, ology, Johnny can tell you this, is the study of something, right? So, Bible, I don't know, you do the math. I'm not good at reading or sports. So when we go to Bible study, we've got to know that our Bible study stands upon our understanding of inspiration. Okay, and we want to get a biblical definition of inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3.16, inspiration, it's all one word. In the Greek, it's theophnustos. Okay, that literally is translated God-breathed. God-breathed, okay? It's a unique word. It's an original word. When you speak of the breath of God... In the Bible, it speaks of the power of God. Like in Psalm 33, verse 6, where it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, 
I don't make, I don't know how to make much of anything, okay? Really bad at creativity, all right? And the Lord's like, boom, shalaka, laka, you know, and right? The universe is made. By his word, the heavens were made. And the starry host of them by the breath of his mouth. So his word, the breath of his mouth, the universe, the heaven, the stars. I'm giving you a freebie in this next paragraph. You'll notice it's already underlined. I forgot to delete the words, so you're welcome. But John Stott says, inspiration is doubtless a convenient term to use. But spiration, or even expiration, would convey the meaning of the Greek adjective even more accurately. Scripture is not to be thought of as already in existence when subsequently God breathed into it, but as itself brought into existence by the breath or spirit of God. He goes on to say, it originated in God's, originated in God's mind and was communicated from God's mouth by God's breath or spirit. Okay? Now, another key passage when we talk about inspiration is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Pause. What this means is in your little Bible study group, we don't want to hear the phrase, well, what this means to me is, all right? And, you know, you've got your own, and I've got my own, when you mix it together, it's really all of this, so, you know. No, no private interpretation, all right? There are rules of literature and grammar that we can follow for Bible interpretation. That's a couple weeks down the road. I just wanted to touch on it for a second. Hope I didn't offend anyone by barfing from the pulpit, but it's going to happen every now and then, okay? Verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along in the Greek by the Holy Spirit, okay? So real quick, a couple different uh, translations of that are, are the ESV says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This wasn't man just like i got a great idea what if we write down some stuff and it's totally going to be like from god or something right that's not how it happened or the new american standard no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will or the niv if you're reading that i like the whole verse for prophecy never had its origin in the human will but prophets though human spoke from god as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now your notes will say there at the bottom of that Second Peter passage that holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. I remember being a senior in high school, going on a senior trip in Lakeview, and just the Holy Spirit was moving at that camp. It was a senior secular trip, and I was around the fire, this bonfire, with about 10 of my senior classmates and I was preaching to them this truth. As one of them said exactly those words, the Bible was just made by a bunch of crazy dudes high on opiates just writing a bunch of stuff down, man, you know. I said, well, the Bible says that it was not just any 
riffraff or any just man or even even some educated man or man of class or not class. These were holy men. These were men that were set apart. And then I just remember going through the story of each one of those men, specifically the apostles, and their brutal death that they died as martyrs, affirming the things that they had seen with their own eyes when they had witnessed Jesus. And by the end of that conversation, I got to lead every one of those 10 seniors to Jesus Christ as their savior. It's a powerful argument. It's a powerful truth. That the holy scriptures were written by these holy men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Acts 27 is a great little, and you got a footnote there so you'll remember it. Acts 27 tells us the story of Paul, and he was on a ship on his way to Rome. And when Luke writes of this story, he says in verse 15, when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Okay, it's a nautical term. We let her drive. I always wanted to say that on a boat. I I call her her, you know, let her drive, all right? And running under the shelter of the island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Moving right along, a whole lot of other shipwreck stuff. It's all great. At the very bottom of this, verse 17, it says, they struck sail and were so driven, okay? So the same word for moved or carried along is the same word Luke uses to describe the ship that Paul was on, driving. All right, being having the sails raised and the power behind it. As they raised the sails, the wind filled the sails and drove them along. In the same way, holy men raised their sails and the Spirit filled their sails. Nobody ever went to breakfast and said, I'll think I'll write the Bible today, but set out to write a letter or a historical narrative to their culture. And the Spirit drove them along. Next thing in your notes is a proposed definition of inspiration. It comes from Ryrie's basic theology. As a guy named Rory, I can appreciate a guy named Ryrie. This definition says that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed in their own styles and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week when we look at inerrancy. We're going to look at these guys' different styles in the Bible. It's a really fun thing to look at. Now, when I can't explain thing very, things very well, I like to turn to someone who can like the Dutch New Testament scholar and commentator William Hendrickson. And because it's so lengthy and a bit deep, uh, I got it there for you on your notes. The word God breathed occurring only here indicates that all scripture owes its origin and content to the divine breath, the spirit of God. The human authors were powerfully guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. As a result, what they wrote is not only without error, but of supreme value for man. It is all that God wanted it to be. It constitutes the infallible rule of faith and practice for mankind. 
The spirit, however, did not suppress the personality of the human writer, but raise it to a higher level of activity. And because the individuality of the human author was not destroyed, we find in the Bible a wide variety of style and language. So, for example, the way the Psalms are written and the way the book of James is written is different. The genre of history is different than the poetic writings. The New Testament epistles read differently than the Gospel of Luke. Why is this? Well, because of the individuality of the individuals who are involved in the process. It also implies that inspiration is organic. It is not mechanical. It could never be considered apart from those many activities, uh, which, uh, I typed this, by the way, so there might be, <laughs> with serve the bring the human author upon the scene of history. Okay, you caught me. I actually wrote this whole thing. It was, it's original. Um, no, not really. Not smart enough. Let me read that crazy sentence again. It could never be considered, apart from those many activities, which serve to bring the human author upon the scene of history. What does he mean by that? Well, God, by causing the author to be born at a certain time and place, bestowing upon him specific endowments, equipping with a definite kind of education, causing him to undergo predetermined experiences, and bringing to mind certain facts and their implications, the Spirit prepared his human consciences. Stop from Hendricks for a second. Go to B.B. Warfield. If God wishes to give the people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepares Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who could spontaneously write such letters. So when you read the book of Acts or you read Philippians chapter 3, you know the story of Paul the Apostle. You know that he used to be Saul of Tarsus. He was a, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was brought up under the greatest Jewish educators. And, and that the things that he would write, the treatises on grace, salvation by grace, through faith, apart from works, this was a guy who had it down, who lived a life saturated in a works-based righteousness, and he could very well explain to his brothers salvation by grace apart from works. And then every other letter that he would write, you, you look at his history and his life, and you say God had totally prepared this guy to just sit down and pen a letter to open up his sails and let the Spirit drive him along to write these epistles. Back to Hendrickson in your notes. Finally, during the process of writing, the primary author as God in a thoroughly organic connection with all of the preceding activity suggested to the mind of the human author that language, that is the very words, and that style which would be most appropriate as a vehicle for the interpretation of the divine ideas for people of every rank and position of age and race. Hence, though every word is truly the word of the human author, it is even more true the word of God. The inspiration of the scriptures. The Bible itself claims to be the inspired word of God. There are over 3,800 references in the Old Testament saying that the Bible is the word of God. Phrases like, God said, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said, or scriptures that directly teach that the scriptures were given by inspiration. There are over 500 references in the New Testament claiming that the Bible is God's word. 
That's 4,300 references total. Let's look at some of these phrases in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10 and 12, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Verse 12, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Or 2 Samuel 23, 1 and 2. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. Isaiah 1, 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Then the Lord goes on and speaks for 66 chapters to Isaiah. Love to hear those pages rustle. That's what it used to be like when we all had paper Bibles, by the way. Turn to the Holy Writ. And <laughs> Not anymore. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 9. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. This is inspiration. Men speaking as they are moved and enabled by God. In Jeremiah 30 verses 1 through 2, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. The Lord had spoken to Jeremiah all of these words and Jeremiah was to write them down in a book. What book? book of jeremiah ezekiel 2 7 you shall speak my words to them whether they hear or whether they refuse for they are rebellious ezekiel 3 4 then he said to me son of man go to the house of israel and speak with my words to them in the new testament matthew 1 so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the lord through the prophet saying when Zecharias was praising the Lord after his son John the Baptist was born, I don't think he named him John the Baptist. I think the Baptist was something that was given to him later, but you never know. Some names are prophetic. In Luke 170, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Matthew 22, 29 tells us what Jesus himself says about inspiration. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So he uses in verse 29 scriptures and in verse 31 spoken to you by God. Spoken through men in your notes, but by God. 100% breathed out right 100 breathed out by god 
100% written by Paul or Peter or Moses or Jeremiah. It's what we call the dual authorship of Scripture. The dual authorship of Scripture. God uses uh, rather dual authorship where God wrote and man wrote. God spoke and man spoke. God uses human personality without violating it, letting men be men. And men use their own human faculties, write things down without distorting the message. As Mark 12, 36 says, for David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. David said it by the Holy Spirit. What did he say? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. By the way, that passage is incredible proof text that the Lord calls someone else Lord. Who is he talking to? The son of God, Jesus. Jesus himself uses that as a proof text. The author of Hebrews uses it in chapter one as well. Acts chapter one, verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So David knew his words were inspired. Jesus knew David's words were inspired. And Peter knew David's words were inspired. In 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. True, the book was written by men, but very clearly the work was inspired and claims that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God was behind them to record and compose without error God's message to man. And so as we learn about the Bible and where it came from, why is it such a big deal to those Christians? It's a reasonable, logical conclusion to come to that the scriptures were inspired by God. Listen to what John Wesley has to say, or read it for yourself. The Bible must have been written by God, or good men, or bad men, or good angels, or bad angels. But bad men and bad angels would not have written it because it condemns bad men and bad angels. Good men and good angels would not deceive by lying about its authority by claiming that God wrote it. And so the Bible must have been written by God as it claims, who by the Holy Spirit inspired men to record his message to mankind. Something not in your student notes, a quote from David Platt here. This all means... We cannot simply pick and choose which parts of the Bible we like, which commands we wish to obey, and which doctrines we will believe. All of it is from the Spirit of God, and therefore all of it is good, binding, and true. Let's look at some inadequate views of inspiration in your notes. First of all, the natural view. The natural view says that the Bible is only the product of human genius. It's not any sort of supernatural revelation. Then there's the mystical view. 
that the Bible is divine, but the process is one of supernatural intuition in which any spirit-filled person can write the words of God. In other words, the Bible does not possess unique authority. The conceptual view states that the ideas or the concepts of Scripture are uniquely and divinely inspired, though not necessarily the details or the wording. This is also called inspired purpose. The partial view. Some parts of Scripture are totally inspired, but not all of them. Usually the inspired ones deal with matters of faith and practice. Well, the Bible itself speaks against these things, or in contradiction, contrary to these things, in our very passage that all Scripture is inspired, and all Scripture is profitable. In Acts 24, 14, we're to believe everything laid down by the law or written in the prophets. When Jesus spoke to the disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24, 25, he said that the disciples were foolish to not believe everything the prophets had spoken. The New Testament authors would cite and believe every small detail in the Old Testament. And so if we have this partial view that some parts of the scripture are inspired, not all of them, you know, some of them, who gets to decide that, by the way? Because, you know, when I'm in the middle of sexual immorality, I like to get that one out of there. You know, or when I'm, you know, spending way too much time watching TV, I like to interpret what idolatry is for myself, you know, or when I'm living for luxury or preaching a false gospel or whatever it might be, things that are contrary to the word, you might have a completely different idea of what is inspired based on your set of circumstances, convictions or sin struggles, whatever it might be. And so it's better to say that the whole purpose of scripture is to say everything it does say on whatever subject. Another inadequate view of interpretation is, uh, or not interpretation, of inspiration, is the dictation view. Which would say that God so controlled the inspiration process that the writers were totally passive instruments like computers, you know, there Moses was one day eating his Wheaties and then, you know, his eyes rolled back in his head and he's just like, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, beep, boop, beep, beep, you know, typing on his little typewriter or keypad or whatever he had, like, that's, that's not what happened, okay, they didn't have typewriters back then, okay, so first of all, you got that, right, um, but, uh, you know, and so it's important to note that the church didn't write the Bible, the prophets wrote the word of God, to the people of God. And the reliability of what they wrote lies in the fact that behind them lies the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the church has no right to rewrite what God has written. We always want to be careful what anyone is telling us or when anyone is telling us, hey, We've moved beyond that. These writings were 600 BC, or this was the first century. 
And that's what they believed about women in the first century, and it's different now. That's what they believed about human sexuality then, and it's different now. And all of the Word of God, or as if the Word of God, is irrelevant now. And not in your notes, just a few things. We believe that in the Scriptures, God is and was and continues to speak to us. If you're at a place where you want to listen to God, open your Bible up. The safest way to hear God speak is to open your Bible up. As Martin Luther wrote in his hymn, What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What more do you want him to say than what he said in the Bible? To quote someone so I don't get in trouble, Alistair Begg says, The craziest people you'll ever meet are those who say the Bible is insufficient to meet their needs or to speak to their hearts. And this comes to the importance of the sermon. Whenever sermons are preached from the scriptures, and of course I'd say this to justify my employment, not at all. If this was merely man stuff, you know, nobody wants to come and listen to some uneducated guy pontificate for an hour and a half and tell jokes and fill it up with witty stories and just talk about what he thinks. But because it's more than that, because we believe that I'm a servant of God speaking forth the truth from the Bible, it's something entirely different. It's worthy of an hour and a half to two hours of our Sunday. In fact, that's totally Americana. That's a little bit radical Americana. You go to Nepal, you go to Africa, you go to Brazil. It's an all-day thing. There's a reason when you read in the book of Acts, when Paul was preaching, a dude fell out of the window two stories up and fell asleep. <clears throat> I totally misread. You know, he fell asleep, fell out of a window because Paul was going long. His name was Eutychus. Eutychus, too, if you would have fallen asleep in the second okay? Maybe people would come for a joke hour at the pulpit. I don't know. Moving right along, does inspiration apply only to the Old Testament? I mean, after all, that's what Timothy had in mind, right? Kind of as, as it was written to him. Or also to the New Testament. In context, both 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.20-21 have the Old Testament scriptures primarily in view. However, the attitudes of both Peter and Paul as they spoke of the nature of the scriptures would have extended to cover the New Testament writings that were currently in the process of, big word, are you ready for it? Inscripturation. All right. Peter implies the authority of the New Testament writings, in this case, Paul's letter, when he says in 2 Peter 3.16, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Real quick, pause. Peter is talking about Paul and Paul's writings, okay? So that Paul, in all of his letters, he spoke things that were hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. A little Paul Harvey for you there. The rest of the scriptures, okay? So Paul fits in the category of the rest of the scriptures, okay? Uh, Paul calls the writings 
of Deuteronomy 25.4 and the writings of Luke 10.7 scripture. So Paul says what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy and what Jesus said in Luke, written through Luke, uh, they're all scripture. He says it in 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, which is what Moses said, and the laborer is worthy of his wages in Luke, which is what Jesus says. Those are all scripture. Okay, so Old Testament, New Testament, it's scripture, and it's inspired divinely. Question, does inspiration apply only to the originals? Get ready to write a lot. Or also to the copies and translations? Does inspiration apply only to the originals or also to the copies and the translations and maybe what you are even holding in your hand today? In the context of 2 Timothy 3, Paul seems to have in mind the manuscripts Timothy possessed, which were likely copies of the Septuagint, okay? Also known as the LXX, which was the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. A problem here is that if copies and translations are just as inspired as the originals, and yet they differ from one another as evidence sustains, then isn't God the author of contradiction and confusion or inconsistency? A solution to this is that two observations may be made. First of all, by scripture, quote-unquote, Paul is referring to the original written message, not a particular document or translation. In other words, he's using scripture in a more abstract or generalized sense, and it's not tied to any one manuscript. By inspiration, Paul refers to one of the continuing results of inspiration, divine authority, which resides in the copies and the translations. So to say that the scriptures are inspired is to say they presently possess divine authority. Wayne Grudem says in his uh, book on theology, the authority of scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Helpful is for us to understand that copies and translations are presently inspired to the extent to which they reflect the original autographs, okay? So I can't just get some construction paper uh, folded in half, write Bible on the front, and then just, you know, write whatever I want and be like, it's inspired, you know? Like, we, like okay, so like how well does this reflect the originals here, okay? And the beautiful thing is with archaeology and as we're going to study with inerrancy in the week to come, we're going to see that we don't have anything we need to worry about. We have got wonderfully accurate copies and translations, okay? Some more than others. Look at that in the future. We also look at it in depth in our school of ministry classes. 
And so we have confirmation back in our text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that from childhood, Timothy has known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make him wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Scriptures, in verse 15, was the Greek word grammata, often translated writings, a clear reference to the manuscripts. And then in our verse 16, where all scripture is given by inspiration of God, it's a different word. It's the word graphe, which is always translated scripture. Okay, so Timothy had some writings, okay, but all scripture or graphe is inspired. With that second word, graphe in your notes there he's going beyond a particular document and is talking about the divine message in a more broad sense there's a reason i'm giving you notes today i know that gears are seizing up a little bit you know you know i know i know your eyes have rolled back into your head you feel like a prophet like not even processing this anymore you know um was which is not what a real prophet did but uh, like, didn't you just say, oh, let's look at the Westminster Confession. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. What does that mean is, you may say, I've read the Bible, cover to cover, front to back. And I got nothing. And I would say, if you go to a file in our house, marked love letters that are from my wife to me you'll read them and you won't understand half of what she's talking about you're reading someone else's mail all right the holy spirit does the work of bringing these words to bear on your heart to where they're more than just words on a page they are words that bring deep conviction of your sin your rebellion against god and his righteousness and how he is just to judge sinners. But also his love and his great plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And being a substitute for our sin. That if anyone would believe on him, they would not perish but have everlasting life. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we read the word. Your notes would say the words of scripture are self-attesting. We cannot use anything to prove the scriptures to be true or the word is made subordinate to human reason, logic, and historical accuracy or scientific truth. 
Though we do have wonderful and incredible evidence. There's objection, though. This is a circular argument. I think it was Grudem that said, we believe the scripture to be God's word because it claims to be that. And we believe its claims because scripture is God's word. And we believe that it is God's word because it claims to be that and so forth. As Grudem says, sure, this is a circular argument, but everyone uses circular arguments to defend their case. What other book written as long ago as this commands the attention of men and women? It transcends time. Thousands of years have gone by. We're going to talk later in the weeks to come about best-selling book of all time. Harry Potter has its flash in the pan. You know, the Da Vinci Code has a quick bubble. And then, boom, right back at it again. The Holy Scriptures, the Holy Bible, a best-selling book of all time. 66 different books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from different continents. And yet, what does it say? All one consistent message of who God is and what he has done to save sinners to himself by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, dying the death of a sinner on the cross, though he never knew sin. That if anyone, again, would believe in him, they would not perish but have everlasting life to the glory of God. What other book transcends the development of science? Oh, I can't wait to look at the the inerrancy of the scriptures. And what do we do when that archaeologist finds that one thing and it just shakes us all? Exciting to study. We'll look at it next week. What other book transcends technology? People were riding on donkeys back when this was written. You know, you guys just drove up here in your Dodge 3500 Cummins diesel. You know, with, you know, MP3 Bluetooth hookup. GPS, all that good stuff. And yet here we are coming back to the book. The different kingdoms that have risen and fallen, and yet here we are. And so as we get all of people coming to challenge us on passages of the Bible, and what do you do with this, and what do you do with that, and immediately we take a back foot, and we get very defensive. And we don't need to get defensive. We can ask these individuals if you've even read the Bible and how do you explain such an incredible book that transcends such time, continents, languages, cultural boundaries. We'll look at that next week. You know, there's no claim that the Bible was let down from heaven on a string. It's not what we're saying. Or that it just arrived by itself. Or that it was buried in the desert on golden plates. No, but that men were carried along. Men with their own personalities, their own struggles. You're going to see their personalities when you read their writings. Their own giftings. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As we're wrapping up here, look at Luke and his introduction. How did he come to write the Gospel of Luke? Well, his eyes rolled back in his head and he had some drool come down and his arm just shot around the papyrus with a quill. You know, it's not what happened. Here's a physician, an educated man of his time, writing in language that some of us go cross-eyed reading. 
And as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. This is Luke. He's like, hey, other guys wrote some stuff. I was there. I'm going to write my, I was there. I want you, another person, Theophilus, to know a historical account of what happened. I'm going to write it from a physician's perspective so that the world would know not only was Jesus fully God, but I can witness as a doctor he was fully a man. Fully God, fully man. The God man. Bruce Ware notes that the nature and the message of the Bible, saying, for although the Spirit is primarily responsible for producing the Bible as the inspired word of God, the Bible is not primarily about the Spirit, but rather it's about the Son. It's about Jesus. The Holy Spirit testifies of the Son. So what is happening? God had prepared Luke with all of his historical bias, with all of his medical knowledge, to declare Jesus to be the Son of Man. Looking at these passages, we are wrapping up. Fat and worship team, come on up. Huh? There's your evidence. You're like, this is never going to end. You also have pages that show you how far. I can't even lie to you. Maybe we're not almost done. What does your paper tell you? Mine says I'm on page 17 of 18. John 14, 26. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Okay, so he's talking to the disciples and he's saying, okay, when I go away, it's actually better that I ascend to heaven. Because when I'm here on earth, it's just me. I'm over here. I'm in Galilee. I'm in Jerusalem. But if I go to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be everywhere. Right. He's going to be with you. He's going to convict you of your sin, righteousness and judgment of God. And then he, when you receive him, he's going to come inside you. He's going to come upon you. He's going to give you power to not sin, to want to be a Christian, to live the Christian life, to tell other people about me. And he's also going to testify of the truth. He's going to bear witness of the things that I've said. He's going to bring to remembrance everything that I said to you. In John 17, verse 8, for I've given to them the words which you have given to me. So this is a prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says that I've given to the disciples the words which you've given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. A few verses later, John 17, 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And then a few verses later, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, Jesus was praying for you right there. Pretty cool, huh? So the progression of inspiration in that John passages. Jesus received the word from his father. Jesus then in turn gave the word to the apostles. The apostles then spoke those words to those who would believe in Jesus. And not only did they speak these words but under the direction and jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit, they wrote them down. 
As we think of the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and teach these people all the things that I have spoken. How is this to be fulfilled after the disciples die? In the New Testament, these disciples wrote it all down. Nations of the world now, far, far away from Israel, can hear the voice of God. How can they hear the voice of God? How can the mouth of God speak in the church? The mouth of God is the word of God. And where the word of God is taught, Jesus speaks. Back in the day, the reformers were so zealous that if you rejected the word, you've rejected Jesus. And we're just as zealous today. He breathed the world into existence, and he breathed the word into existence. Sinclair Ferguson said, The scripture does not tell us everything about everything. You can't go in the Bible and learn how to throw a perfect loop. I threw that in there for us, right? Perfect heel shot. You won't find your wife's name, how to fix a leaky pipe. But the Bible tells us something about everything. The Bible tells us the origin of man and the ultimate destiny of man. It tells us about creation and the judgment seat of Christ, the predicament of humanity, the future of the world. It tells us about God, how God hates sin, but loves sinners, how he knows everything and he's knowable. The very Bible itself is called the sword of the spirit. Vance Havner said, this book, I'm going to use my phone, this book, raise up your books there, you got good books, the book, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Why don't we put our things aside today? But you, O oh man of God, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, you have come to know the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus.